This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Howdy. 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 I was told I had to say that. <laughs> All right. Good. Um, let me ask you a few questions if I could. So how many of you are Catholic? How many of you know something about Catholic social teaching? Right. How many of you know what subsidiarity is? Okay. 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 Good. All right. It's a good place to start. Um, how many of you know where Catholic social teaching begins in the history of the Catholic Church? Um, is it Rerum Navarum? Rerum Navarum is an encyclical letter by Pope Leo XIII, which we'll talk about. And it is the beginning of modern Catholic social teaching. Um, Pre-modern Catholic social teaching begins with Genesis. Right, because Catholic social teaching is basically the application of church teaching to everyday life, particularly political, social, and economic life. So, of course, starting with Genesis makes sense. Um, I'm going to focus on the economic life because that's what I know about. That's my area, so I will stay with that. Um, but and we'll focus on the on the modern part. But we'll go back to Saint Thomas Aquinas as well because a lot of modern Catholic social teaching is grounded in in his work as well. Um, so, so we mentioned already Pope Leo the Thirteenth in eighteen ninety one writes this important encyclical. How many people know what an encyclical is? That's a good group. Wow. Okay. <laughs> For those of you who don't, it's a letter from the Pope to the public, right, to Catholics in particular, but everybody else. Um, in the late nineteenth century, there was something on everybody's mind called the social question. Anyone know what the social question was? Finally, something I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I was thinking I'd be a quick lecture because you guys know everything. So, um, uh, The social question was, what do we do with all of these poor, uh, downtrodden people as a result of uh, the Industrial Revolution? They're, they're all working hard just to survive. Um, and there's threats of uh, revolution, you know, Marxism, um, huge inequality, anarchy, regular assassinations, um, violence, etc. What should we do? Um, the last place anybody was looking for for a solution for this was the Catholic Church. Because in the late 19th century, the Catholic Church wasn't looking very good. It looked like this antiquated uh, throwback from the, the Middle Ages. Uh, when Pope Leo was elected Pope in 1877, there was a French journalist who was there at, at the kind of announcement and he described it as the last act of a dying institution, right? From the perspective of 2022, with I don't know how many billion Catholics, you know, a billion Catholics, it seems rather premature for him to say that. But back then, that's what it looked like. He's like, this is this place. Because in those days, they still crowned the popes and they still carried him, you know. And, and so they're like, this, you guys are so medieval. And that was meant to be an insult. Um, so, so, <laughs> so he, we know better, right? So, um, um, he was 68 years old, and he was sort of a stopgap pope. They thought, all right, he's going to die soon, but he can just be a pope for a few years till we figure out who, else, who to get next. Uh, but the Holy Spirit had other plans. He went on to live for another 30 years. Um, and he was one of the most prolific popes um, in terms of the encyclicals he wrote. He was brilliant, um, particularly on the topic of, of economics. Um, there were a number of Catholic leaders who approached him uh, for guidance on the social question. They said it's time for the Catholic Church to have something to say about this social question. There was a group called the Freiburg Catholic Union of Social and Economic Studies, a bunch of academics who would get together and other, other leaders. Included in this group was a close friend of Pope Leo by the name of Prince Karl zu Lowenstein, um, who was an industrialist, um, leader, faithful Catholic. Um, I, I got an ins interesting inside story about this Prince of Lowenstein. Um, I was at a dinner in Milan several years ago, and I was sitting next to a guy, and he, he was introduced to me as a Prince Sue Lowenstein. And I said, gosh, that's interesting, because I was reading about a Prince. This guy was Alois Sue Lowenstein. It's Karl Sue Lowenstein. Any relation, and his eyes just lit up, and he said, that was my great-grandfather. So it's like, <laughs> wow, all right, cool. So the story he told me about his great-grandfather was uh, Carl um, went to Pope Leo and said, um, I'm th I think I have a vocation to be a priest. 
what do you think? And the Pope, it's handy when you have a Pope as a spiritual director, right? <laughs> and the Pope said to him, let me pray about it, come back tomorrow. So he comes back the next day and he says, I got a lot of priests. He says, but I don't have a good, faithful Catholic lay leader. So go get married, raise a family, be a leader in society. So it's like, okay, I did. Got married, had 12 kids. And so this friend of mine is very happy about that. Obviously, <laughs> he wouldn't have existed. Um, but but um, uh, so, so Tulowenstein and a few of other his friends did a bunch of kind of research, preliminary writing to help Leo um, eventually, what came out with this, with Rerum Novarum, this document, um, in English, um, the title is On the Condition of the Working Classes. So it was Leo trying to bring out Catholic teaching about how should we treat all of these poor people? What, what should we understand about, about economics? Because there were several things on offer, right? There was Marxism that said we had to, all property had to be belong to the state, and then the state had to take care of everybody. You had laissez-faire capitalism, where anything goes capitalism, and, and if the poor can't make it, that's just bad luck, you know. Um, and various other various other alternatives. Um, and so Leo comes out and he, and he lays down a few important guidelines. He he flatly rejects any idea of abolishing private property. He says private property is not the problem. That's not the problem here. And if we abolish it, it will, be, it will make things even worse for poor people because they have to be able to hold on to the little that they have and the more that they can gain. So we can get into that in more depth. Um, he goes on then to talk about the workers having duties, not just rights, but duties, particularly duties to do good work and to respect their workplace. And then employers having duties regarding respecting the employees, treating them well, giving them time off, weekends, uh, or at least Sunday off. Um, and he also came down in favor of unions, which was a surprise to some people. Um, but he had a rather distinctive take on unions. He said we should have Catholic unions, which would take care of both the spiritual and the, and the physical well-being of Catholic workers. But where it's not possible to have a Catholic union, he said, it's permissible for Catholics to join other unions. So, so, um, so these, these are some of the, the points that he laid out. What, what I want to pull out to kind of illustrate Catholic social teaching is a sort of a fringe movement called distributism. How many of you have heard of distributism? Okay, good. Um, the reason I want to bring it out is because it, it helps highlight, I think, some of what is unique about Catholic social teaching. Uh, distributism was promoted by two um, Catholic intellectuals, uh, Hilaire Belloc and G.K. Chesterton, English Catholic writers. Um, Chesterton made a particularly important point. He was drawing, trying to draw a distinction between private enterprise and private property. Because he said people who tend to be fans of the one assume that you have to be fans of the other. He said that they go always together. But, but Chesterton said they don't necessarily go. He said, you can think about a pickpocket, right? Somebody, a thief, right? Who, he said, a thief is a champion of private enterprise, but not a champion of private property, right? Because he's <laughs> violating private property by stealing, right? So important distinction. Um, Chesterton's other point that, that he wanted to make was the observation that capitalism has a tendency to monopoly. If you have a system that is targeted, sets as a goal the maximization of profits, then it's going to do anything it can to keep those profits growing, including trying to put barriers to entry to other people so that you can have more profits for yourself. Um, Belloc um, drew a distinction between what he called the servile, the capitalist, and the distributed states, three, three different economic arrangements. In a servile state, you work for a boss and, and you do what the boss tells you. In a capitalist state, you get to choose your own boss, but then you have to do what the boss tells you. But in a distributive state, you, in a sense, run your own typically farm. So you have, you have no boss. How many of you grew up on a farm? All right, so, so, and if you did grow up on a farm, it wouldn't be the kind of farm that Belloc had in mind. He, he talked about how if you grew up on a family farm and you, you produced everything that you needed, you may not have had a luxurious life, but you had the freest kind of life because nobody was telling you what to do. You did what you want when you wanted to. Now, much of the time, what you had to do was farm, right? Because otherwise you wouldn't eat. Um, but, but there was nobody you had to bow to, nobody you felt like you had to kiss up to, nobody whose opinion mattered. 
I, I want to emphasize that because it's such a foreign idea today. We are always worrying about what other people think, what our bosses think, what, you know. Um, so it's a very different concept. Um, I'm not even sure we think of it as desirable anymore. But, but his idea was true freedom comes from being economically free in that way, not just politically free. Those of you in the back, can you hear me okay? Okay, good. A lot of happiness going on there. So, um, so, so is capitalism a bad thing according to Catholic teaching? The way Belloc defined it, yes, it is a bad thing. He defined it as the ownership of the means of production, where, where the ownership of the means of production is confined to a body of free to citizens, not large enough to make property ownership a general character of society, while the rest are dispossessed of the means of production are, and are therefore proletarian. So what he's saying is, he defined capitalism as only a few people have capital. Everybody else has to work for a wage. Um, by proletarian, he meant politically free, but not in control of any useful amount of, of capital. So you're politically free, but not economically free. Why do I say not economically free? You are dependent on your employer. Again, this is, it's almost foreign to us to not think of ourselves as being dependent on an employer. Like, well, how would I eat? Well, if you had sufficient capital that you could work with and make a return on that capital, you wouldn't need an employer. For example, let's say you owned a couple of, a few rental properties and you spent your time repairing those rental properties, taking care of them, renting them and so on, you don't have a boss. You just, it's kind of like an entrepreneur who runs his or her own business, right? Um, but, but what Belloc calls capitalism isn't necessarily what we mean by capitalism. Um, and in fact, part of the problem is that there are many different meanings to capitalism. Different people mean different things. Let me give you two fundamental types of capitalism that I think helps sort this out. Every business does two things to be a business. It creates value, right? Creates things that people want to pay money for. And then it captures value. It ca keeps some of the money that, you know, uses the money that people pay for the goods to pay employees, to pay expenses. And then you keep some for, your, for, the, for the owners of the business. Depending on whether you prioritize creating value or capturing value, is whether you are doing good capitalism or bad capitalism, capitalism that is acceptable to the Catholic Church and capitalism that is not, okay? If you're focusing on creating value first, you wanna create value, things that people want, so that's your focus, and you do that well, then you take a fair share of that. That's perfectly consistent with Catholic teaching. But if your goal is I wanna make as much money as I can, and I don't particularly care how I do that, that's not at all consistent with Catholic teaching. The difficulty, of course, is looking at a business from the outside, sometimes you can't really tell which kind of capitalism are they doing. Because you don't know what's inside people's minds and in their hearts, right? But if you work for a company, you can usually tell how well do they treat the people. If they seem to care about their employees and care about their customers, it's typically the former type that I call entrepreneurial capitalism. Because I see it a lot in smaller businesses, right? Neighborhood businesses, local businesses, where they know their customers, they know their employees well. Um, entrepreneur, they're caring, fits with Catholic teaching. The other kind I call imperialistic capitalism because it's just all about domination. It's all about get what you can for yourself. There's a line in an encyclical letter called Centesimus Annus by St. John Paul II. This letter was issued in 1991 to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Rerum Novarum, where, where St. John Paul II answers explicitly the question, is capitalism consistent with Catholic teaching? And he literally says, well, if by capitalism you mean, and he describes the kind of thing I'm calling entrepreneurial capitalism, goes, then yes, absolutely. But he says, but maybe we should use the words market economy. He says, because capitalism, just, does anyone know who came up with the word capitalism? Karl Marx. Like, why are we using that word? Really? I mean, you know? anyway, so the market economy says, yes. He says, but if you mean by capitalism, a kind of free for all, do what you want to get as much as you can, and he says, no, that's not, that's not a fit with Catholic teaching. Um, let me go a little deeper into some of the principles of Catholic teaching, particularly around, um, around private property, because I think that that's will really help understanding this. Uh, so you all said, you, or many of you heard, you, you've heard the word subsidiarity, you've also heard the word so solidarity, right? So solidarity is the principle that we should care, each care for others, right? Whether in business or not, we should be caring and helping each other. 
Uh, subsidiarity is the principle that decisions should be made at the lowest level consistent with, with effective operation, that it's wrong for a higher level organization to interfere with the functioning of a lower level organization. Um, and sometimes people think there's an inconsistency between solidarity and subsidiarity because solidarity says, well, we want the government to take care of people, right? And subsidiarity says, no. <laughs> um, so so how, do, how do you put those two things together? The, the idea is that solidarity is achieved through subsidiarity. In other words, the best care you can give to others is to help them care for themselves, right? That giving somebody a handout is never as dignified as helping them. Mother Teresa, right? Teaching someone to fish rather than giving them a fish, right? That's how solidarity and subsidiarity go together. But the ideal society is one where everybody is contributing. Um, Pope Francis in particular has emphasized this, that by treating the poor as a problem to be solved, we are not honoring their dignity. The problem that they want solved is not poverty as such, but a sense of contribution, right? That, that everybody wants to be part of the solution. Everybody wants to be contributing to society. And, and so merely giving somebody a handout is not helping them grow, right? So that's why the solidarity and subsidiarity are not opposed, they actually work well together. We also have two principles about private property that at first glance seem to contradict each other. So the one is the principle of private property itself, which says that we have a right to own private property. So this was Leo XIII was defending this. There's also another principle that Leo highlighted called the universal destination of goods. How many of you have heard of this principle? Very good, all right. Universal destination of goods says that God created the world for the good of everybody, for the benefit of everybody. Um, Okay, how do those things fit together? If the, if the created world is for the good of everyone, then how can we have private property? And St. Thomas Aquinas answers this question. He says, because practically speaking, because of original sin, we know that if we didn't have private property, we would have chaos, right? Uh, people don't take care of things that aren't theirs, as well as they take care of that are theirs. Now, they shouldn't. They should take care of things, even if they're not their own, but they don't. So practical, right? There's, um, so how do the two things fit? Uh, the, the way we make them fit, and this is this is St. Thomas's teaching, and we know that this is really important to Catholic social teaching because it's quoted word for word by Pope Leo in Rerum Novarum, and then that quote is quoted word for word by Pope by St. John Paul II in Chintes Musandus. So this is a, so central to the church teaching. Thomas says, with regards to private property, there are two things in general in our relation to private to property. The first is our ownership of it. So, so let's say this podium, let's say it's mine. Okay, so it's mine, I decide, like, like if somebody wants to take it, they have to ask me and so on. But then there's the use of the thing. So he separates the ownership of the thing and the use of the thing. He says, with respect to the ownership, it's better for society when everyone knows whose is, who's is what. So I don't, that, who owns what? That leads to a more orderly society, we tend to take better care of things. He says, but as regards to the use of things, we ought to think of our property for the use of others, for the benefit of others. This is a really radical teaching when you think about it, right? So, so I own a truck, right? It's my truck. People can't just take it without asking me. It's my responsibility to change the oil and so on. But if a friend of mine needs a truck because they're moving or whatever, I have to be free and willing to, ready to lend it to them because that's the purpose of property, to serve others. Now, in a family, it's the most obvious, right? So, so I spend probably about 3% of my annual income on myself, right? I buy books every now and again, I have a little boat. But the rest of it is on my kids, mainly their education. Right? So, but also their food, their clothes, the house. So we have six kids, so it gets a little expensive, you know? Um, but that's the way it should be, right? That's the way it should be. So the purpose of, of Ownership brings orderliness to it. Private ownership brings orderliness to pro property, but the purpose of property is to serve others. So, so this is important if you compare it. So, so it's, it's contra-communism or socialism that wants to, 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 to socialize property, right? That's, that's contrary to Catholic teaching. But it's also contrary to any idea of property as it's mine and I do what I darn well like with it, you know? And if I want to uproot a cherry tree and replace it with an oak tree because oak trees are in this year and cherries are out. I, I remember reading about this. It's like $50,000 to 
uproot a fully grown tree and put it anyway. Then, then I can do that because it's my money and I do what I like. Right? That, that's also t entirely inconsistent with Catholic teaching. This making sense? I, I, think, I think it's beautifully nuanced and it makes so much sense to me that even if I weren't a Catholic and I was studying this, I think I would become Catholic because it's like, this makes so much sense. You know, I don't hear this kind of wisdom from any other economic tradition. Okay. Now, back to distributism and why it's so important, uh, or why the message that they're bringing is so important. There's a sociologist by the name of Alan Carlson who wrote a brief book, very thoughtful book, called Third Ways. Each chapter is about, one chapter is about distributism, and then all the other chapters are about different movements that try to promote kind of small-scale living, living in accordance with faith, and so on. And the, the book has a depressing ending. Uh, the ending is that every one of these movements ends up being crushed. Crushed by big business or big government, or usually both of them working together because they don't like competition, right? Um, what the distributors are warning about is the dangers of concentration of wealth and the concentration of power that follows it. The principle of subsidiarity is kind of the un underlying warning against this, I think. Um, there's an Austrian economist by the name of Wilhelm Ropke who wrote in a book called Humane Economy in 1975, quote, nothing is more detrimental to a sound general order than two things, mass and concentration. By mass, he means everything on a massive scale, huge cities, very big companies. Uh, um, uh, concentration is wealth and power in a few hands and then everybody else just living hand to mouth, right? Um, he continues, quote, individual responsibility and independence in proper balance with the community, neighborly spirit and true civic sense. All of these presuppose that the communities in which we live do not exceed the human scale. They are possible only on the small or medium scale in conditions which do not completely destroy or stifle the primary forms of human existence such as survive in our villages and small or medium-sized towns. He's writing this 50 years ago, uh, talking about how if you don't have a scale where many or most people know each other, kind of they have relations with each other, you can't have a truly kind of flourishing human existence. Um, but it's not just for our social existence, it's also for economic prosperity. So. There's an economist by the name of John Powelson who, who did a tremendous study over decades about what drives economic development. And he said, the basic things we know, you, you need to have rule of law, freedom of contract, private property rights, etc. These institutions usually lead to economic development, economic prosperity. But he started to notice that in some countries where you had those institutions, they would stick and the economy would prosper, in others they just wouldn't, and they would never get to prosperity. And he was trying to understand why. Uh, after decades of study, he wrote a book called Centuries of Economic Endeavor. He looked at over 100 years of economic history, various places around the world, and the answer he came up to is you can't have economic flourishing without a balance of power. So balance of power is the opposite of concentration of power. Right? The balance of power, power is more spread out, more diffuse. And the reason for that is where you have concentration of power, those in power absorb all the wealth and they get very inefficient with it. They have lots of homes, you know, lots of cars and so on. They don't invest in being more productive because they have all the wealth, so who cares, you know? Friedrich Hayek, another Austrian economist, argued that concentration of wealth and power leads to the destruction of capitalism and of a free society. His book, The Road to Serfdom, anybody read The Road to Serfdom? Hayek, yeah. Um, in there, he actually cites uh, Hilaire Belloc um, as his original source, um, that once you start to get this concentration, society begins to decay, economic development begins to, to stall. Um, and therefore, the, maintaining a balance of power and a, and a kind of distributed wealth is an idea that is both morally and economically correct, if that's making sense. It's like it's morally the right thing to do and it's practically the right thing to do. Because if you allow concentration of power, that's unjust, but it also leads to economic decline. Do you see, do you see the connection there? Okay. 
Um, it's interesting, though, to ask where we stand today in terms of how concentrated is wealth, particularly in the United States. Here's a statistic. 63% of the population do not have the ready cash to deal with a $500 emergency. That's almost two-thirds of our country, right? Don't have 500 bucks that they need, like, car broke down, I need to get it repaired, or I need a copay on a, don't have it, right? But almost two-thirds of the country, right? That, that, to me, is shocking, right? That says we've gone pretty far down this line of concentration of, of wealth. Um, one sticking point for some people, when, when I go on and on about property and the importance of property ownership, is I think, because when we think of the word property, we sort of assume that we're talking about luxury goods, that property is like, private property is like big houses, nice cars, yachts, and so on. Um, but that's a misunderstanding of the word property. The Catholic Church wouldn't be making such a big defense of property if it was all about yachts, right? The, universal destination of sailing vessels, you know, that's not, that's not, I'm a big fan of sailing, you know, but, but that's not what this is about. There's this deeper conception of private property defended in the Vatican II document Gaudium et Spes says, quote, private property confers on everyone a sphere wholly necessary for the autonomy of the person and the family. Private property gives us autonomy, right? Luxury goods don't give us autonomy. The church is talking about productive property, things like investments, tools, agricultural land, rental homes, resources, assets that you can use to support yourself and your family. That's what the church means by property or pri private property in particular. So we want the vast majority of families to have private property, to have some source of income, right? That you're not entirely dependent on a job. So that when you're out of a job, you're not desperately running to find the next job and you take the first job that comes up, nor are you desperately dependent on the government, right? Because then you worry about who's going to be in power. Like the, the excitement we have over the elections these days, in part, I think it's because so many people are dependent on government. They're not. And so when you're not economically free, you're not truly politically free either. This is the point that, that Belloc and Chesterton made, and I think it's a really important point to make. And that's the point that the Vatican Council is making in this document by saying that private property is required for, for human freedom. Um, a government transfer payment, so welfare or unemployment, is not a substitute for the security of having private property. Uh, not just because you're dependent on someone else, in this case you depend on the government rather than depend on yourself, but private property allows you to grow in virtue, grow as a human being, where a transfer payment does not, right? Um, if I get a, a, an unemployment check, all I have to do is deposit that check, right? I've got the money. But if I own a, a rental apartment, I got to take care of that apartment. If the plumbing, you know, backs up, I got to get it fixed. It needs to be painted and so on. So, so I have to work and care for that property. So, so ownership of freedom through ownership of property helps you grow as a human being. Freedom through a government check does not. Because that's, I think, a really important, an important distinction. Um, the, uh, and that's why Belloc and Chesterton are saying that the solution is more widespread property ownership. Uh, the word distributism, I think, sometimes confuses people. They think of it in terms of redistributism, right? That's not what it is at all. That's not what they meant it to be. The word distribu distributed, right, can, can have two, grammatically two meanings, right? It can be it can be the adjective, as in widespread, widely distributed, widespread. That's what they meant by distributism. Or it could be the past participle, stuff that was distributed. I took it from you and gave it to you. That would be different meaning of the word. That's not what they mean by distributism. Okay, but the question is, if widespread private property ownership is a good thing, consistent with Catholic teaching, important for human flourishing, important for economic growth, how do we get to it? The answer is not an easy one. Um, Belloc himself says redistribution of property is very hard to do without grave injustice. Right? Taking from the rich to give to the poor is not a Catholic theme. Right? There's it's a grave challenges to justice when you do that. There are ways to do it justly. Um, there have been some successes, few and far between in history. The most famous is in the 1960s Taiwan, a program called the Land to the Tiller program. 
Taiwan had a whole bunch of, the vast majority of the land, farmland on the island at the time was owned by a few absentee landlords. Well, the rest of the country was poor as can be. The government forced the landowners to send, to sell portions of their land, which they then turned around and sold it to anybody who was willing to work the land on a very long-term mortgage. Um, and this led to the economic miracle that became Taiwan. Because now you had a whole bunch of people who had property, so they were going to work darn hard to pay back their mortgage, to be prosperous, to, to grow up, to be successful. Um, so that was fantastically successful. So there are ways to do it. But there, in that case, it wasn't even a sort of expropriation. The government wasn't taking wealth from the, they were forcing them to sell the land, basically, at, at, at what, what was close to a market price. Um, so, so how do we, how do we get property more widespread? I think part of the program has to be in the negative, and that's to stop doing the things that are making concentrated ownership worse. So fulfilling the principle of subsidiarity is, make, is eliminating every form of corporate welfare or, or crony capitalism. Like any, any attempt of the government to help a business is generally a very bad idea, right? Because it, it ends up being the government playing favorites, right? Because who gets to decide who gets to be helped? Um, I have a friend who, who's a mushroom farmer in Italy. Italy is a highly regulated economy. And he once told me that he spends more time in the week reading government bulletins to find out which new subsidy he should apply for than actually farming his mushrooms, right? Now, think about what, how economically inefficient that is, right? Uh, but the problem with those kinds of things is they tend to favor larger organizations because he's this small family farm. He wastes half his time reading these regulations. A much larger industrial farm would have the regulation reading department, right? It would handle all of that while everybody else is doing the, the farming work. Uh, government regulation in general tends to be regressive in the sense that the costs tend to fall much more heavily um, on smaller businesses for the same reason as my mushroom farmer. Um, big companies can afford the legal department that handles all the regulatory compliance. Smaller business doesn't have the time to learn about all the paperwork, all the new regulations coming out each week and so on. Inflation that we have all been suffering through the last couple of years um, is also very regressive in terms of it favors people who already own hard assets. If you own real estate, if you own shares, um, uh, inflation doesn't bother you as much because the prices of those things go up with inflation. If you are merely a wage employee, inflation really hurts because your wage always lags behind the, the rising costs, so you just get squeezed and squeezed. Um, usury is another thing that helps to promote concentration of capital. We can talk about that later if you want in the Q&A. Um, so that would be the negative program, would be to, to stop doing all the things that favor larger companies and, 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 um, um, and hurt the smaller companies. Um, that's a, the negative program, but is there a sort of positive program that promotes Catholic social teaching um, and promotes more widespread property ownership? The problem with that is that if you're going to use a regulatory tool to do that, no matter how well intended, there's this phenomenon called regulatory capture. Anybody studying economics familiar with regulatory capture? It, it's this idea that in any situation where you have a regulated business, the regulation matters way, way more to those being regulated than to those who are supposed to be benefiting, benefiting from it. I'll give you an example. Think about an electrical utility, right? The people that produce electricity. Um, how much time energy do you think they spend worrying about their being regulated? A lot, right? Because it's so their profitability, their success is so dependent on what regulation is put on them. Versus us, the customers of the utility, do we ever even think about their, have you ever thought about regulation of utilities before? Do you even think about utilities? You, I mean, it used to be you had to write a check once a month for your electricity. Now it's done by bank, you know, deduction from your bank account. So you just never think about it, you know? Um, and so what happens is, given that they're thinking so much more about regulation, they have so much more pressure to bear on the regulators. And then you have these, um, what do you call them? This sort of revolving door where um, senior executives, sorry, senior regulators will retire from the government, then go work for a large corporation making lots of money. And so the junior regulators go, I better behave because I want that nice cushy job when I retire. You know, so this. 
Um, and so the regulation always tends to get spun in favor of the in favor of the large corporations. And so any kind of regulation, no matter how well intended, you always run that risk. I'm not saying there should never be any regulation. Of course, there should. But you want to be careful about any regulation intended to try to somehow favor one group over, over another. The deeper problem, though, I think, is that is there enough virtue left in our society to want to be more independent, more self-dependent on our own property? Um, Belloc is asked, asked this almost 100 years ago. He says, he wrote, will men still want to own? Do sufficient numbers of people prefer property and independence or wages and dependence? Uh, freedom and responsibility that goes with it or security and servility? He says, or have we kind of fallen so low? Um, question goes as far back as the founding. Uh, founding Father Sam Adams, famous line from a speech at the Pennsylvania State House. Quote, he said, if ye love wealth greater than liberty, the tranquility of servitude greater than the animating contest for freedom, go home from us in peace. We seek not your counsel nor your arms. Crouch down and lick the hand that feeds you. May your chains set lightly upon you and may posterity forget that you are our countrymen. Have you heard any such words in defense of freedom in your lifetime? Right? I mean, do people even think this way anymore? You know, have we become so soft? And we'd rather just be given the handouts, you know, or just go to work and, and, and get the salary. And it doesn't have, I'm not talking about small, like uh, I remember in business school, uh, taking a class in venture capital and the professor was talking about the kind of excitement of entrepreneurship. He says, the thing I worry about you is that you become fat and happy. He says, well, what I mean by that, you get a nice big fat salary and you just keep going to work for that salary, but there's never this kind of real independence. Um, so does anyone think like this anymore? I don't know. Instead, we have this scourge of consumerism, right? That I think has done a lot to this misunderstanding of, of, of property, not as productive property, but as luxury goods. Uh, consumer is based on what, what Russell Kirk calls, quote, the great delusion of this epoch, which is the desire for immediate gratification. Isn't that interesting? Kirk says the biggest delusion of our time is the idea that there is such a thing as immediate gratification. When as Christians, we should know that life is a veil of tears. There's a lot of suffering and the real joy comes at the end. There's a joy in the journey, certainly, but the real joy comes forever after, right? Um, we want to get it all now. Um, and so we have this sort of real consumerist drive exacerbated by technology. Another philosopher, Albert Borgman, uh, talks about the dangers of technology separating pleasure from the work that would otherwise be required for that pleasure to arise. So you compare microwaving a meal with making a meal from scratch, right? A heck of a lot more effort, especially if you had to farm to make, the, you know, to grow the food and then make the meal, right? A lot of work versus you buy the TV dinner, if they still make such things, and then you microwave it, you know? Um, you're separating the pleasure from the work. Um, even something as simple as, as um, watching a movie rather than reading a book, right? Reading a book takes more effort. Ultimately more rewarding, I would argue. Watching a movie is easier. You just sit there and you passively kind of receive it. Book engages your imagination. You have to work the imagination to, to, to read the book. Um, Borgman argues that these easy pleasures enabled by technology crowd out the more complex pleasures. So we spend more time probably watching videos now than we do reading, uh, more time eating prepared foods than making foods, right? more time playing video games than going for a hike, um, more time shopping, you know, et cetera. Um, so I want to bring this to something more, um, more practical. So, so I've given you just sort of very high level overview of Catholic teaching. I used, say, distributism to illustrate a few key points, particularly the importance of private property and subsidiarity and therefore widely distributed property. Um, the, when seen through that lens, our current economy can be quite depressing when we look at it. Um, so I don't want you to be depressed. I want to end with something sort of practical. I mentioned Alan Carlson, the sociologist, before. One of the phenomena he describes as being problematic, he says, is historically, we have moved from our homes as a center of both production and consumption. We made stuff and we consumed it at home uh, to home as a center of consumption only. We are only live at home now to consume things. We don't make anything at home anymore. Why does that matter? Consumption 
is self-centered. When we consume even with others, you go have a meal with others, we each get our own meal, and we each eat our own meal separately, right? Um, you know, lovers might eat from each other's plates, but if other people did it, it'd be like disgusting. <laughs> Don't do that, right? <laughs> but even then, you, it, it goes to your mouth and you digest, it's like by yourself, right? But the act of production is, is much more other-centered because we generally produce not just alongside with others, but with them together, right? Our work kind of mixes up together to, to produce the, the, the end product. Um, and, and, and you're doing it not just with others, but for others. It's not just for, your, for yourself. And so when homes are centers of production, the family is a much stronger unit because we, we tend to be close to those we work together with, less close to those we just consume with, okay? So my suggestions to you are next generation. One, two, three, four, five, six, <laughs> six suggestions, okay? Six suggestions that I hope will be practical. One is get married and raise a large family and make your home a center of production and consumption, okay? That's not as crazy as it sounds. Have a vegetable garden, make yogurt, we make yogurt. Um, make sure that kids are involved as young as possible in the cooking and the cleaning, in every aspect of household management, repairs and so on. Um, I'm a reasonably well-paid um, dean of a business school. I used to be a very well-paid management consultant. I would do things at home that made no economic sense whatsoever, right? I once restored a table, not an antique table, just a table that someone threw out, but I thought this is solid. It just needs to be refinished and painted and so on. I spent several hours doing that. I said to my wife, you know, this table cost us $20,000, right? In consulting fees, right? That, that if I had been out consulting, you know, I, that's how much I could have earned. But that just presumes that the purpose of life is to make as much money as you can, right? Um, if you're working together at home, the value of that, like the commercial said, is priceless, right? So that's the first one. Um, home is a center of production and consumption. Second is do everything you can to avoid becoming consumeristic. And specific advice from St. John Paul II in Centesimus Annus is allow truth, beauty, goodness, and communion with others to guide both your spending and your investing priorities. Right? So spend my money on things that are true, good, and beautiful. Which doesn't mean that you should never buy nice things. You could buy a nice painting. I have a dad who's a painter and he sells his paintings. I think that's good. <laughs> um, they bring beauty to people's homes, you know. Um, third thing is find your joy in true leisure, not in things. Try to identify things that you do for their own sake, not for something else. So hiking, making your own music, dancing, cooking, feasting, reading and so on, not things that you do for another. So, so example I give to my students, if you go to the gym to get healthy or to get strong or to bulk up, that's not a leisure thing, right? Because the purpose, now I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, it's good, do that, but don't call that your leisure. Find something else that you do um, just for its own sake. A good test is if I could eat, pop a pill and get the result of this thing, then it's not real leisure, right? It's got to be something that I enjoy just for its own. Somebody says, why are you doing it? Why are you reading that book? Because I like it. Because I like reading it. Why are you going for a walk? Because I need to get there? No, because I just, because I want to walk. I'm going to walk in a big circle. It's going to be a great hike. No purpose other than just the walking itself. Um, I touched on usury before. I wouldn't go into a little as much deep depth as that. Let me just very simply say that the old church teaching about usury, which still stands, is that it's wrong to extract interest from somebody who's not, to lend somebody money and then extract payment from them for the lending of that money if they're not making any money with that money, okay? Because that just makes you richer and them poorer. Justice means that there should be an equal share or some kind of reciprocity there, right? Um, if they're making money with it, then of course you deserve some of that. If they're not, then it's wrong. Now, structurally, it's, it's, it's hard to avoid that in our society. It's not a sin to be the recipient to, to be paying the interest rather than receiving it. But nevertheless, it's a bad thing. So, so my strong recommendation to you is don't ever borrow money at interest except to make more money, okay? So okay to borrow to go to school because that's gonna give you a higher salary. So you're getting a return to that. Okay to borrow money to buy a house 
if the savings are going to be more than you would be paying rent, right? Okay to borrow money to buy a car. If you needed to go to work to get a better job, then you could get to with public transit. We're in Texas, you don't have public transit, right? <laughs> so so you, you need a car, right? You, um, but never okay to borrow money to go on vacation, right? To borrow money to buy nice clothes, like, to, you know, on credit card or whatever, just because you want them rather than because I need them to go to, go to work. So that was number four. Um, number five, cultivate the virtue of thrift. Be stingy, right? Save money. No matter how much, how little you make, even as students, you know, whatever part-time job, try to save some of it and put it to work. Start investing, you know, find ways to invest, save your money. The last idea is what I call the half and half solution, uh, exemplified by a friend of mine who runs a small farm outside of Ann Arbor, Michigan, and is a part-time highly paid statistics consultant. Um, it's hard to make a living today. I mean, you can make the same living today as a small farmer, as small farmers have made throughout the centuries. But then when you look around you and you see that it's possible, for example, to have healthcare and CAT scans and stuff like that, you want more for your children than they had 500 years ago, understandably. So it's difficult to make a living just as a small farmer. Some do it. Uh, you're all getting a really good education here. So think about, can I make a living in 40 hours a week and then have a small farm or something like that so that I can have this sort of home as a center of production, get half my income in one area, half in another, or 80% in one area, 20% in the other, and have a more kind of real life in that way. Okay. Catholic Social Teaching in a Nutshell by Dr. Abella. <laughs> Any questions, comments, reactions? Yes. I have a question. government supporting them swoops in and kind of um, really takes over the uh, resources of some certain country. And then perhaps we see maybe some sort of regime change in this country, and then perhaps this resource gets uh, nationalized suddenly. So like examples I'm thinking of are maybe like Iran with oil in the 70s, or, or Mexico in oil, or perhaps uh, like uh, countries in Central America and other parts of Latin America with agricultural lands. So what does the church say in this, uh, or like what could church teaching say about this kind of international um, injustice that's happening in the current like economic, political, and social order? Like what would be uh, a reaction toward like healing this sort of injustice that would be minor? Ah, okay, okay. So I mean, your question isn't, does the church say it's okay or not? Right? You already know that it's not. Okay, 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 good. <laughs> Just, okay, good. Because you, you said injustice. So we start with the... So, so given a situation that is manifestly unjust, what should you do? So Catholic social teaching talks about something called a structure of sin. A structure of sin is... It's actually originally a Marxist concept that... You know, Marx wasn't wrong about everything, right? So, so um, that, that church has taken and describes as uh, um, the result of personal sins. This is where we differ from the Marxists, right? Marxists identify structures and say those are unjust structures and they're evil and they're just there. Church teaching is that the unjust structures arise because individuals did bad things, right? But those bad things tend to have lasting consequences that become structural. So no one's doing anything evil anymore but the thing remains there and it continues to be oppressive. It continues to be bad. So structure of sin, um, these things exist. And then, and then the church talks about, well, how do you overcome structures of sin? And the response is through personal sanctity, right? That, uh, there's a famous line, there are no just structures without people who want to be just. So it has to always begin with personal conversion, personal sanctity. I think that's a really important point because there's a danger to think that you can fight fire with fire here. So we have an unjust structure there. Let's put a just structure and just smash it away. It's like, no, that just 
structure, whatever that is, will eventually get, or fairly quickly get corrupted if there aren't a bunch of good people upholding it, you see? Um, and in fact, conversations about um, Catholic social doctrine sometimes tend to degenerate into policy debates. And I say degenerate because ultimately I find that to be not very helpful. Um, there's a famous communist joke about a commissar visiting a little village and all the villagers are lined up for inspection and the commissar is going up to them and quizzing them. And, and he says to the first one, uh, comrade, if you had two houses, what would you do? And the villager says, I would live in one and give the other to the party. It's like, good answer. Comrade, if you had two cars, what, what would you do? Because I would drive one and give the other to the party. Very good answer. Next guy says, comrade, if you had two pair of pants, what would you do? It's like silence. Goes, comrade, what would you do? He goes, that's a difficult question, he says, because I have two pair of pants. <laughs> so in other words, now it's about me, right? Before it was hypothetical because those guys did not have two houses or two cars. Right? And it's the same with Catholic social doctrine. It's like, oh, government should do this. Rich people should do that. Companies should do that. It's like, this is the hard part of Catholic social teaching. It's like, what does it mean for me? How do I think about property? How do I think about consumption? How do I think about serving others? It constantly has to be a challenge, right? Um, so I think it's, uh, yes. So I wanted to just make sure we were defining um, the difference between personal property and private property. Um, in terms of Marxism, since you're talking about that, um, because there was, it was never really a question of abolishing personal property, which would be cars, homes, phones, you know, like stuff like that. Yes. But more private property as in, you know, taking the goods of something that someone else produced with your property, if that makes sense. Yeah, so when, when the church is talking about private property in particular, so my focus is productive property, right? So the means of production, capital. So, so are we talking about the same thing? I think so, right? You used um, examples of like that podium or like a car. Ah, I see. Yes, that's true. No. That is true. That's true. Well, um, in Catholic teaching, all of those would come on the, on the private property. What you're saying is in Marxism, he draws a distinction. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that distinction doesn't hold um, in, in Catholic teaching. But I think what we're, we're both interested in is what you're calling, what Marx is calling private property, right? right? Not personal. It, it's, the, it's the productive property that I think is, is, is what's important here and, and what justifies the church's teaching about it. Does that, that make sense? Yeah. You're right. It was misleading by the podium. Well, podium is sort of productive. It's helping me deliver a talk, right? So, yes. All right. So I have a question, but it starts with a little... Um, historical story to get to my question, if you bear with me. Yes. So, now, almost 100 years ago, in the Soviet Union, they had a very peculiar economic situation in the chaos that developed after the end of World War I. And in this situation, the, you know, Russia before the revolution was essentially feudal. I mean, St. Petersburg and uh, Moscow had a fair amount of industry, had wage workers, but most of the country just farmers. All of a sudden, the czar was gone, people were fleeing. So these peasants, they found themselves by themselves. So they lived something in that brief period that I think very much approximates a little bit uh, this sort of distributist idea of they own their own land. So the peasants, they own their own land, the war and the chaos is going on around them. But now that the country is beginning to solidify under the Soviet Union, a very the strange situation that emerges is the price of agricultural goods starts going up very high, whereas the price of industrial goods collapses. They called that the scissors crisis at the time. And now the reason for this, of course, was because all of the peasants, they were self-sufficient and they were doing better than ever because they weren't being, like they didn't have to give up half their um, product to a landlord. They were able to support their families. They had lots of free time. So it was great for them. But now the food price, because of that, they weren't interested in the goods that the urban workers were making because they didn't need them. They were self-sufficient. And so as a result, it became very difficult for the urban workers to sell their products. Their wages collapsed. They couldn't afford the rising agricultural prices because the peasants could demand a much fairer price for it now. And so they were kind of an impasse. At that point, um, there was a conflict 
in an honest situation between two groups in society, urban workers and peasants, um, just pursuing their own self-interest. And now, if they had just sat there and done nothing, what would have happened, of course, is the Soviet Union would have collapsed because they wouldn't have been able to feed the urban workers that were supporting the party. We know in real life what solution the Soviets chose, which was to inhumanly collectivize everything and you know just all the mess that came out of that, which led to the rapid industrialization of the country and the creation of a large, you know, productive uh, proletarian workforce that worked in the new big cities in the Soviet Union that made it the really powerful economy that it became, of course, at the price of many peasants' lives or private farms. So now the, the thing that I wanted to point out about that is that it says something in particular about distributism, namely that it seems to have a very hard problem becoming a reality. Because the more and more, as even under a, a, a typical capitalist situation, if we, if we have the case where people have these independent ownership of productive property that they can depend on, then now they're not so worried about what happens to their jobs. So if they get fired, it's no big deal, right? And in that situation, the wages of all the workers in this country, for instance, would go up because the companies would need to pay people more to convince them to stay in their jobs, right? Yep. And eventually, this would cause the amount of profit that the companies were making to collapse. I think, well, at least I strongly suspect, that this would lead to a collapse of the of the driving profit system of capitalism in the United States if something like that were in the impossible sense to be um, implemented. And so what I'm saying is that there's a fundamental contradiction between the processes that develop capitalism into a strong system of socialized production, you know, where many people come together to collaborate to create goods efficiently. This the 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 one the tendency under capitalism towards concentration of economic power that creates really efficient industrial output is, is directly contrary to the kind of society, the kind of institutions that would sustain distributism as an economic mode. So there's just a fundamental impasse at this point, and we can't go back. So that, that's really that. I've just always seen that issue with it as a mode because it sounds really attractive as a system. Yeah. It just seems like um, that, the, that the development of productive forces under capitalism inherently destroys the kinds of modes of life that would create a distributed society. Can you repeat the question if you like? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so what I'm saying is how do you deal with that? Because if it's the, really the ideal of Catholic social teaching is distributism, and distributism turns out to be an impossible fantasy that can't be sustained in between ah, feudalism and capitalism, good. then we have nowhere. Good, okay. Like. Thank you. No, that's, that's a good clarification. Um, I, I didn't want to suggest that distributism is the ideal of Catholic teaching. Catholic teaching is a set of principles, right? So solidarity, subsidiarity, private property, universal destination. I wanted to bring out distributism because it allows us to shine a light on certain aspects, particularly the concentration of wealth and power that I, want, that I thought was so, so important to, to talk about. Um, I'm not a historian of the Soviet Union, so I know a little bit about that period, but not enough to, 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 to discuss it in, intelligently. Um, but one of the good things about the market economy is the power of, the, of price signals, right? So, so things tend to not get too crazy out of whack without adjustments happening, right? So the price of gas goes up, people drive a little bit less. People try to produce more oil, you know. People try to produce more electrical vehicles, and so on. So there are these um, there are these evolutions that happen. And so, if more and more people thought it was great to have private family farms and start to become independent and wanted less manufactured goods and so on, it wouldn't happen overnight, right? It would be a steady evolution, such that those other firms would shrink, and instead of having some cataclysm, you'd just have a shift in interests. Um, I, you might have argued, you know, 50 years ago, if people start to become a lot more concerned about the environment, there's a whole bunch of businesses that are going to go out of you know, business and people will be out of work. It's like, well, it didn't really happen that way. Or if you said, you know, people are going to get really into organic food and then a lot of farms are going to go out of business and a lot of manufacturing, you know, food plants are going to go out of business. Well, it's a heck of a lot more people eating organic food now, but it's been an evolution, you see? So, so there's a certain ingenuity in the human spirit that adjusts to things. 
And the beauty about the price system is it giving you constant signals saying people want more of this, that's why the price is going up. People want less of that, that's why the price is going down. It's the same with, with um, um, salaries, right? These people are making a lot of money because we need more of them. Those are making less because we don't need as many. So people tend to shift careers and so on. So I'm not as, as pessimistic, I would say, about, um, about moving to a different, maybe more wholesome way of living. Um, but at the same time, I say I don't want to say that Catholic social teaching says everybody has to have three acres and a cow and anything else is not Catholic, right? That's not, that's not at all the message here, yeah? Good. Yes, sir. I've heard uh, from pretty few people who like more of the political. They'll say that uh, they'll use an example from the Acts of Apostles, called like, the early Christians who gave all their possessions for the good of the community, and they were prepared that's like socialism and communism. Could you explain like how like those don't believe, or if you they were supposed to say they actually were kind of similar? Yep. Yeah. So in the first few years and decades um, after the death of Christ, uh, many Christians came together, gave everything they had centrally, right. Uh, to the apostles who then distributed it to, and, and to uh, deacons and so on, who distributed it to those who were in need, it quickly became evident that that doesn't scale. That model doesn't scale. It only works when you have a group of people who more or less know each other, right? Um, so communion of goods is, is, the, is the reference, is now lived in different ways. The most directly related to that would be the monastic communities. So people who join a monastery, you know, a convent, they give everything they have to that monastery or convent, and then they depend on the monastery. And it works because it's a small unit, right? That they all know each other and they're under obedience and so on. Uh, so so that, that works. There are other um, more innovative forms. Uh, there's a group of... Uh, there's a lay Catholic movement called Focolare. Have you heard of them? It's in t founded in Italy, yeah. Uh, they have a movement called the Economy of Communion. Their idea is to start businesses that are dedicated to this communion of, uh, of goods. And the way they live it is every year, anybody, or at any point, anybody in the community who is in need, say medical bills or lost a job or whatever, they go to the leaders of community, the community and everybody else pitches in to help them out. But again, it's a sort of human scale entity. For everybody else, um, the, the way we live communion of goods is through tithing. So tithing is you take 10% of your income and you give it away, no matter how small or how big your income is. Um, and um, it's less complicated, it's less all in than giving everything you have, right? But it's still a way of saying, as I live, I want to support other people's lives as well. So that, those are the various ways in which people do that now. Um, it just doesn't seem to be practical to live communion of goods on a massive scale. And, and evidence for that is just look at whenever it's been tried. It's been horrendous, right? It's been horrendous. Um, the, 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 I, I think it's because of the concentration of power. Those who collect, right, and are responsible for redistributing just get a little too greedy. Yes. So you mentioned how the concentration of wealth leads to like economic and political decline yep. and also social decline. Would you say that it can also lead to moral decline of people? Or is it more like a chicken uh, egg thing? Like did the moral decline happen first and then we yep. have this concentration, concentration of power? Or the concentration of wealth happen and people are just not living more lives? That's a really, really good question. So the question was, um, Concentration of wealth and power leads to, to economic decline, political decline. Does it also lead to moral decline, or does the moral decline come first? A thought on that? Bellick has a thought on this. He says that the Protestant Reformation actually led to a lot of the economic decline within Europe. Because of the, but that's because of the concentration. Yeah, because, of, because people were choosing to not care about morality. They were, they were choosing to be usurious ah. rather than... Okay, so there's, there you have the moral decline beating, yeah. preceding. Um, there, I mean, there's several things happening in the Reformation, um, starting in the UK, right? The enclosure of the commons, right? Mm -hmm. is, is taking away common land and privatizing it. The common land was mainly for the benefit of the poor, right? Who could graze their few farm animals there. Without the common, they have no, they have no land, so they have no place to graze their animals. They end up, the animals eat them, and then you're done. You know, you're a real... A real pauper. There's one scholar who says that 
uh, pre-Reformation Europe, the poor were better cared for then than any time in history before or since. In other words, better than now. And the reason for that is what I was mentioning before, is the poor then felt like they were full members of the community. Yes, I might be poor, but you're not trying to hide me away in a, some development somewhere. You know, I'm a full member of the, of the, of the community. Um, but it, it's hard to, to look at kind of, the, I say, chicken and egg. Although, although I think throughout history, um, you know, people debate about the, the collapse of, of Rome, right, the Roman Empire. There are good arguments, I think, that say that that was driven primarily by moral decline, right? Um, and so I think you can see that in, in, in different places. If, if you had concentration of wealth and power and yet strong morality, it would lead to undoing that concentration, I think, because generosity would lead you to want to distribute that. You know, so good question. Yeah, time for one more question. One more question. You get the last one. Uh, so, other than the six suggestions you had, if you were like, like some billionaire wants to create a distributist communities and spread distributism, what could be done? Would you go and buy land and give about three acres and out every person who's one to farm? Um, what I would do, just just if I had money like that, which I don't, I always thought it would be fun to um, to have a development that was more integrated with kind of homes, farms, and um, and small shops and so on. You know, just um, all integrated. I read about one development in Michigan, I think, where you had a bunch of houses built around the farm. And then they had sort of first rights to buying the stuff there. So, so I, I, I would want to, here's the answer, here's the answer. And people are doing this already. Would be some form of, of lending that were not debt-based, but equity-based, right? I would say it's, a, it's a pro, an investment program where if you want to buy farmland and farm it, and you have a business plan that shows you can actually make a go of it, I'll invest in that land and you'll pay me a share of your earnings and you'll slowly buy out that land over the years, you know? Um, look, I, just to give you an example so we can get away from the farming all the time um, to show that this can be done in, in many different industries. Um, uh, some, some companies are really good at this in terms of helping others prosper, right? Um, how many of you know Chick-fil-A? Do you have them here? Yeah, okay. All oh, right, we all know Chick-fil-A, okay. Um, the way Chick-fil-A, so it's not a franchise system, right? Chick-fil-A owns the Chick-fil-A's. So it's not perfect as a private property, but they share the profits with the person who runs the store. I think it's something like 50-50. Very generous, right? And so you can make a lot of money running uh, Chick-fil-A, so much money, in fact, that they get like tens of thousands of applicants for every new position. So it's not easy to get the job. But um, that's one example. There are others like that. Companies, as we had a guest speaker last week, a company called Grand Street, tech company that facilitates auctions of municipal bonds. So little niche market, 400 people. Um, very generous company that basically everybody who is in the company for a certain amount of time gets to buy in the into the company without actually putting any cash. They get a sort of a share in the company. Um, so, so there's a certain generosity that I think is needed among those who have capital, not to give it away, but to use it to help others be productive so that others can get a share as well, which doesn't mean you have to give yours away. It's just you're not trying to grab everything for yourself. You know, just there's a certain generosity to it. All right. I wish I knew what they were talking about. <laughs> Thank you.